If you have your Bible, let's turn to Romans chapter 8 as we keep going through Romans and specifically through chapter 8 right now. If you don't have a Bible, then please get one of the Bibles on the end of each pew uh, in those black Bibles. I think it's on page 945. If I have that a little bit wrong, then you'll be close uh, and you'll be able to find it. Romans 8. We're going to be today in Romans 8 verses 9 through 11. Let me read for us and I'll just start one verse back in verse 8, just to remind us where we were and introduce this. God has said to us, the Holy Spirit God has breathed out these words through the pen of the Apostle Paul. He tells us this, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All right. He can give us life. I hope one of the things he can do today is keep us awake. I had a dream last night that I fell asleep during my own sermon. Can you believe that? So I hope that that wasn't a prophetic dream, right? But we have today in front of us part of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, God, the Spirit who has come to us. There's all kinds of ways that people talk about this person of God, about the Holy Spirit, about who he is or it is or whatever you might say. But we have in front of us this idea today that the Holy Spirit indwells every Christian, that the Holy Spirit is the one who battles against our sin and who will ultimately give us life. I love this quote that's in your bulletin today uh, where Jonathan Edwards had said this. I love Jonathan Edwards. He said, The Holy Spirit in his indwelling, his influences and fruits is the sum of all grace, holiness, comfort, and joy. Or in one word, of all the spiritual good Christ purchased for men in this world, and is also the sum of all perfection, glory, and eternal joy that he purchased for them in another world. Amazing, amazing. And he lived before the charismatic movement even started. Can you believe that? And the Holy Spirit is the one who sums up all of these things, applies all of these good things of Christ to our hearts. He told us in the verses that we were in before this that there's a difference between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. Those who are of the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. We talked about that last week, how that's connected so much to what Jesus said, that you're not to store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy, thieves do not break in steel. We're not to treasure the things of the flesh, the things that pass away. We're to treasure God and his kingdom, those things that are permanent and beautiful. Not to be those who have minds of the flesh, but to be those who have minds of the spirit. There was something toward the end of that passage that was a little discouraging, though, which is that those who are of the flesh can't do anything about it that they cannot please God. They do not submit to God's law, indeed cannot. That there is nothing that someone can do who is lost in their sin to make themselves unlost. What that has to be, what that means is that it can't be a work of the flesh. It can't be a work of the will 
of the human being himself doing it. It has to be a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to come and change those hearts that 100% of the time would choose against God. But where it's said in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, here's the encouragement to those of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the encouragement. Here is how this is about the assurance of salvation for believers as this whole chapter is about. You, however... That means you, the church in Rome, or you, the church in Matawan, the believers in Jesus Christ of any place, of any time, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. This is saying, first of all, if you're following along on the back of your bulletin, that the Holy Spirit indwells every person. As John 3, 6 said, Jesus said to, to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Either you're still in Adam, as it was put back in Romans 5, or you are in Christ. Either you are still in the flesh, or you have been born again by the Holy Spirit, and you are now in the Spirit. He's laying out here there are two realms of humanity. There's the standard one that all of us are born into, in Adam, in the flesh, but as Jesus said, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. But when the Holy Spirit comes, and he comes as a wind, Jesus said in John 3, as a mysterious wind and not a weak little summer breeze, but more like a hurricane that forces over the human heart and makes us joyously turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, he is the one who can take us out of that realm of being in the flesh and transfer us into his glorious kingdom of being in the Spirit. But he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, we've got to ask here really quickly, who, who are we talking about? When we say Spirit, when we say Holy Spirit... This one who would dwell in you, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Who is this? Well, this is the Holy Spirit, and this is God. One of the very important things to know about the Holy Spirit is that the Bible calls him God. Uh, probably the most direct place where that happens is in Acts chapter 5, where there's a couple in the early church in Jerusalem who um, they, they make, well, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but they make a tricky deal to make themselves look good to the church, and they lie about it, and Peter calls them up to the front and tells them, you have not lied to men, but to the Holy Spirit. You have lied to God, is the way that he puts it. I tell that story just to say, it's, that's one of the clearest places in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is directly called God. So you need to know that. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about something other than God or something that just sort of floats around God or something that sort of smells like God. We're talking about God, the Holy Spirit. He is the third person of the Trinity. God, when we say Trinity, we mean that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. How do we know that? Well, because the Bible teaches it. There's not a passage that says, here is the doctrine of the Trinity, but here's some things that the Bible teaches is that God the Father is God. God the Son, that's Jesus, is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. That the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. 
and yet there is only one God. Now, is that easy to understand? No. But when you put those things together, that's the basics of what we mean about the doctrine of the Trinity. That there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God. Wow, that's hard to wrap our minds around. But it's three persons in one God. Or three subsistences in one substance. Or three manners of being in one being. Or all kinds of ways to describe this, some better than others. And yes, it's hard to wrap our minds around, but the Holy Spirit is one of those three persons of the Godhead. We, we usually call him the third person of the Trinity. Why would we do that? Is, is it because he's not quite as powerful as the Father and the Son? Absolutely not. The three persons of God are equal in every divine perfection and everything that there is about God, same in essence, equal in power and glory. But we call him the third person of the Trinity just because of the way that he is described by the Father and the Son. That when, when Jesus comes into the world, that Jesus is said to be sent by the Father. And then Jesus comes and says that the Father is sending the Holy Spirit and that he is sending the Holy Spirit. And so we, we talk about the Father. God the Father is the one who is defined by this, this status of being eternally unbegotten. Now, is that hard to wrap our minds around? Yes, but I'm just going to leave it right there. And I'm going to say the Son, Jesus, is the one who is defined in his personhood by his eternal begottenness, that he never came into being but that eternally in who he is within God, that he is eternally begotten of the Father. And we call the Holy Spirit, and we, we look at him in his position as part of the Trinity as being eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Sometimes that's called spiration or breathing out. Are these things confusing yet? I hope maybe this will drive you to go deeper into the doctrine of the Trinity. But all this just to say, we don't need to get mixed up and start saying that the Holy Spirit is some sort of an impersonal force or some sort of a goo or some sort of a feeling that you walk into a room and get or your conscience or something like that. The Holy Spirit is God and he is personal and he is not an it. He is not a soup. He is a person of God. He, the, the, the Father, God the Father, set the plan for redeeming us from our sins from before the foundation of the world. He set it up. God the Son, Jesus, he came in time and space and history and carried out our redemption. Took on flesh, lived perfectly for us, died perfectly to pay for our sins, rose from the dead perfectly, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, will come again in power and in glory personally. And the Holy Spirit is the one who takes the redemption that the Father planned, that the Son carried out of the cross, and he takes that work of Jesus and goes to individuals and applies the finished work of Jesus to the human heart. He always does it through the preaching of the gospel. But he's the one who does it, not man. 
He's the one who makes people born again. He's the one who can come to verse 8 and say, those who are in the flesh cannot please God and take somebody out of the flesh and wake up their hearts to believe in the Jesus who they hear preached, to turn to him in faith and to repent of their sins. The Holy Spirit is the one who bears fruit in us as Christians. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us spiritual gifts which are the gifts that God gives to every Christian for the purpose of building up their church family, the mutual upbuilding. He's the one who empowers us to do whatever it is that God would have us to do. That's the filling of the Spirit, to be able to do what God would have us to do because the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to do it. And he's the one who has come to live in every believer. That's what we're talking about. That's what's taught in verse 9, is that you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, what if the Spirit of God dwells, doesn't dwell in you? Are, you? are you a Christian? He says anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, does not belong to Christ. So when, when I say every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I'm not saying every person who calls themselves is a Christian. I'm not saying every person who grew up in a Christian family and therefore believes that they are Christian by birth, which is not possible. You have to be Christian by new birth. You can't be Christian by birth. But everyone who does believe in the Lord Jesus is indwelt with the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ, as he's called here. He's called the Spirit of God. He's called the Spirit of Christ. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's called the Spirit He's called the spirit of holiness in Romans 1.4. This is the spirit of God who comes to live in us. Now, one of the reasons it's really important to emphasize this is because there are branches of Christianity right now that teach in opposition to Romans 8.9. They teach that there are different levels of Christian that are defined by whether or not someone has the spirit. Uh, th- this is this, this, this charismatic movement which traces its Uh, roots all the way back to the ancient year of 1906. I just got to say, I know, to some of you guys, 1906 sounds like just forever ago, unimaginably far back in the past. If there's something, if there's a way of interpreting the Bible that didn't exist for 1900 years of all those people looking at the Bible, it's probably not right, okay? It's probably not right. But it came up around 1906 through this Azusa Street revival in Los Angeles and spread from there. It's all over the world, this charismatic movement. But very, very common within that movement is this teaching that says, well, you can be born again, but then not yet have received the baptism of the Spirit or not yet have been indwelt by the Spirit. That you need this second experience where you not only receive Jesus, but then you receive the Spirit and in receiving the Spirit, they would say, well, here, here's what that looks like. You receive these, um, these, these supernatural gifts, these supernatural gifts that were obviously active in the book of Acts and in the age of the apostles. You see these spoken of in the New Testament, but they would say, well, if, if you've really got the Holy Spirit, then he's going to make you into a tongue speaker, or he's going to make you into a prophet, or make you into a miracle worker, or make you into a healer, et cetera, et cetera. And those who are within that movement would look at a church like ours, and the term that they use for a church like ours is a dead church, because we don't believe 
that you have to have a second experience to get the Holy Spirit. We don't believe that God is still giving new revelation on top of the finished scriptures through things like tongue speaking and ongoing prophecy and things like that. We believe that those things were completed in the age of the apostles and that we now have a sufficient Bible where we have everything that is necessary for life and godliness that has been given to us so that nobody needs the extra prophecy to have life and godliness. But they would look at us and say, we are a dead church. You don't have the Holy Spirit. Well, here's what it says in Romans 8 and 9. It says, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's pretty clear right there. Every Christian gets the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every one of them. Now, there's, there's a couple of problems with uh, the whole charismatic movement and the view of that, and I'm, I'll have to wait until chapter 12 to address some more of those because chapter 12 is where he starts talking about the spiritual gifts, and that's where that's going to come up a little bit more. But I'll, just, I'll tell you two problems right now. One is a practical problem, one is a biblical problem. The practical problem is that an awful lot of people in that charismatic movement who are saying that the Holy Spirit is working in them are working in those supposedly supernatural ways with false messages coming from them. Saying that God is doing a work of the Holy Spirit, for example, to make them to speak in tongues, but then babbling in a non-intelligible kind of a babble, which is not at all what the Bible says that tongue speaking was in the age of the apostles. You see that clearly in Acts chapter 2. When they start speaking in tongues, they're not unintelligibly babbling. These are people who haven't learned foreign languages, who are speaking the foreign languages that they haven't learned supernaturally, and there are speakers of those foreign languages who are there hearing them and understanding the gospel through those words and those languages. That's not at all what's happening right now in the charismatic movement. Or when they say that they are prophets, they have to clarify that by saying, oh, well, the prophecy that God gives now is fallible because it became fallible in the New Testament age, that the prophecies that the Holy Spirit gives can be messed up. They have to say that because so many of the prophecies that they say are proven wrong constantly. There's an absolutely nothing in Scripture that shows that prophets, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, would ever give a false prophecy by the Spirit of God. It's simply not possible. It's not possible. So we see some practical problems there. But biblically, here's the bigger problem. We always want to know what is the biblical thing, what does the Bible say? And the Bible says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, you are not a Christian. It's not that you become a Christian and then get the Spirit at some point down the road when you receive a supernatural anointing. It's you either are a Christian and you have the Spirit, or you're not a Christian. That's the way it says it. Even, at, even back in Acts 2, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, Right after all of those people stood up and spoke in those tongues and those foreign languages that they hadn't learned and supernaturally did that, Peter said to the whole crowd, here's what he said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
He doesn't say, some of you who have an extra experience of spirit baptism will receive the Holy Spirit. He says, believe and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we look back at Acts and you say, but, 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 there were some people who believed and then later they received the Holy Spirit. Yeah, for that time in Acts. As God was showing that he was doing exactly what Jesus said was going to happen in Acts chapter 1-8, where he said, his Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was the way that God was showing that the, the gospel and salvation was coming not only to the Jews, to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, where the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, but also to the Samaritans who believed in the Lord Jesus, where the Holy Spirit came in that visible manifestation of power in Acts chapter 8, and then to the ends of the earth where the Holy Spirit came with those visible manifestations of power in Acts chapter 10 as Peter was at Cornelius' house witnessing to the Gentiles. And so, yes, God used that way of doing things in the book of Acts in chapter 2, chapter 8, and chapter 10 to show, yes, I will save and indwell people who come to faith in me from every tribe and tongue and nation. But that's not the normative way. It's not the normative thing to believe and then later get the Holy Spirit, and we can see that here because he says it so plainly by the time that Paul's writing the book of Romans If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're a lost person. That's what he says. You're a lost person. Now, that might make some people scared. might make you say, well, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? If if I don't know that I have the Holy Spirit by some sort of a really obvious sign, like speaking in tongues or, or prophesying, well, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? Well, the main way that Jesus spoke about it in, in, in John 3... He says, here's what the Holy Spirit does in somebody. He makes them born again. And here's what it looks like when you become born again. You turn and look at Jesus and believe. And in that believing in Jesus, you step out of the darkness and into the light. Meaning you're no longer so so concerned with keeping your sin hidden in the darkness, but you're willing to come and be exposed and repent as, as a believer in Christ. So that's very plainly, if you want to know what does it look like to have the Holy Spirit, just go read the first half of John 3. Jesus explains it to Nicodemus. He says, here's what it looks like to be born of the Spirit, to have the Spirit at work in you, is you believe in Jesus and you repent of your sins. There's some other things that the Bible talks about of, of what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit. Do you not just say that you believe in Jesus, but do you love Jesus? In John 16, 14, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Sometimes we're people in you know, churches of our persuasion, the reformed kind of, of branches of the faith, we're accused of not emphasizing the Holy Spirit as, as much as we ought to. But what Jesus said is that the Holy Spirit emphasizes Jesus. He will glorify me. But one of the things that that means in our own personal hearts is if I have the Holy Spirit, I'm not just going to profess that I have faith in Jesus. I'm not just going to believe the facts that Jesus died and rose again. I'm going to love Jesus. I'm going to glorify Jesus. That's a work of the Spirit in our hearts. He, He also causes us to love God the Father. 
He's going to say this in just a few verses in Romans 8, 15. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If we cry out to God in our hearts, Abba, Father, this is my father, my dad. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in us. If we love the Bible, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to love the Bible, right? doesn't mean that if you missed your quiet time this morning, you're not a Christian. I don't mean that. But you're going to love the Scriptures. You know why? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's a spirit kind of word, a breathing kind of word. And it says in, in, in 2 Peter 1.21 that what, here's what the Bible is. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you say, well, I, yes, I'm a Christian and I have the Holy Spirit, and, and you open up the book that the Holy Spirit wrote and it just doesn't resonate to you, and you say, I, no thanks, or I want to cut parts of this out, then it's pretty difficult to say that you have the Spirit. It's pretty difficult to say that you're a Christian. It, it, it's even put like this in 1 John 4, 6. This is John the Apostle speaking about the ministry of the apostles, which is you know, now given to us as the words of the New Testament. He says, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So if you look at the New Testament and you say, ah, this is just the words of men. That's just their opinion. It's hard to say you're a Christian. You can repent. You can believe. Another mark of of having the Holy Spirit is to love God's people, to love the church, to love the congregation of the saints of the Lord. In Ephesians 2.22, it calls God's people a, 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 uh, this spiritual house being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Guys, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to love to come into the congregation of the Lord's people. It's, it's, you're going to be built up. You're going to be refreshed. You're going to be you're going to love the people of God. If you say that I love God, but you don't love the people of God, well, 1 John 4.20 says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For whoever does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know why that happens? When you come to, to know Christ, why you start loving other Christians? It's because the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts is he causes us to love and care about each other. Now, we, we grow in that love too, right? It's not like perfect love immediately, but we grow in it. We grow in it. Another thing, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to love holiness. Have you ever noticed that the name of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit? If you say, I, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit, but you don't love to be holy in your life, it's hard to say that the Holy Spirit is the one who's indwelling you. He's called in, in Romans 1.4, the spirit of holiness. Now again, does that mean, oh, I, I committed a sin yesterday that I'm ashamed of. Does that mean I'm a lost person? Well, no, that goes all the way back to Romans 7. It goes to the next verse. Ch- uh, uh, verse 10, is gonna, that's not what we're talking about. But you know what Christians dwelt by the Spirit love? They love to grow in holiness even if they're ashamed that sometimes they don't. But they love it. They love it. And you can ask, is, this, is the fruit of the Spirit growing in me? 
not not as the not, not as the fruit of the spirit already like a full ripe fruit in every way but is it growing is it there is there a bud is it growing of love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control one more thing too that the bible tells us that it looks like to be indwelt by the holy spirit there's evidence of that is you want to tell people about jesus maybe you're scared but you want to you want to share the gospel with people so that they can be saved. You know how I know that? Because of Acts 1.8. You, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. If you say to yourself, yes, I trust in Jesus, but I just want to keep it a private faith, and I don't want to bother anybody, it's pretty hard to say that you trust in Jesus. It's pretty hard to say that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you when Jesus said, here's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is he gives you power to bear witness about Jesus. I have good news, though, for you guys. If you say to yourself, wow, after all that, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. Maybe you're just a discouraged Christian today or maybe you're a lost person. You know what you need? You need God to do a supernatural work in you. And he loves to do it. And here's what Jesus said. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, if he asks for bread, you don't give him a stone. If he asks for fish, you don't give him a snake. You give him good gifts. But if we know how to treat our children like that, Jesus says, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You hear that? Go to God. Go to God and say, God, would you give me the Holy Spirit? If you're already indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I think he'll still bless that prayer. I think he'll, he will still be at work in you even more powerfully by the Holy Spirit. But if you're a lost person, you're still in the flesh, and maybe the Holy Spirit right now is just doing a work to convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment then go to God and, and go to Jesus and do what he told you to do. Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will save you, and he will take you out of the realm of the flesh, and he will put you in the realm of the Spirit. And believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit, just remember, he, he is the guest in you at all times. We, we have a little sign in our house. Um, I hate that I forgot who gave it to us right when we moved here. If it was you, thank you. Um, we have a little sign in our house that says that, that Christ is uh, the unseen guest in this house, in every room. And you know what, Christian? Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, is the unseen guest in your heart. And so that's why the Bible tells us, do not grieve the Spirit. Do not resist the Spirit. This is something to keep in mind as we live our lives. If he's indwelling us, we need to live from the inside out, from our thoughts outward in a way where we remember he's here with me and I need to glorify him. Are we going to have to ask for forgiveness about that every day? Yes. And I hope it's also an encouragement as well. Second thing that this passage tells us, not just that the Holy Spirit indwells every Christian, but that sin and the Spirit oppose each other in every Christian. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, I'm going to pause right there and notice, 
Here's the way he's referring to the Holy Spirit in verse 10. Christ in you. You hear that? This is one God in three persons. If you're wondering, am I better off with Jesus indwelling me or the Holy Spirit indwelling me, I have good news for you. There is no difference between those things. He is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit, believer, is Christ in you. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. He has sent his Holy Spirit to be in you. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. See, there's three things that he lines up in the way that he says these phrases. You've got the body on the one hand. You've got the Spirit on the other. You've got death on the one hand. You've got life on the other. And you've got sin on the one hand, and you've got righteousness on the other. You, but I, I want to think really quickly, because he's going to explain that second phrase with verse 11. But think about what this means. One of the things is that every Christian has a tug within us that we know, that we feel, between the flesh and sin on the one hand, and the spirit and holiness on the other. Back in, in chapter 6, verse 12, he told us this, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal, or you might say dead, bodies to make you obey their passions. This tells us right here that every single one of us, guys, we're still in our old dead bodies, right? One day, verse 11 is about to tell us, one day, Christian, you're going to have a resurrected body that has no corruption, that doesn't have desires of the flesh that draw you off after sin. But for now, you still have the dead body. You still have the old self that wages war against your soul. You still have spiritual battle to wage on a daily basis. And you have this mortal body that has passions towards sin that make you want to obey them on a constant basis. So that's one of the things that this verse is talking about, is that even indwelt by the Spirit of life and given the righteousness of Christ by the Spirit of Christ, we still have a battle going on all the time, where every day, no matter how much you have grown in Christ, no matter how much you've been sanctified, you are still going to have to wake up every day in this life and decide to put sin to death, or it will be killing you. We'll get to that more in next week's as well, where it tells us to put sin to death. But I'll just remind you of this, Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But, Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's do that every day. Let's do that every day. But another thing that this verse tells us, not just that there's a tug in our hearts between sin on the one hand and the Holy Spirit on the other, that is true, but it also reminds us that even as believers, we have the reality of physical death to look at and to deal with. Believers in Jesus still die, still suffer, still have our bodies sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly fall apart until they end up in the grave. And we would wonder, why would that happen? It's a hard thing to wrap our minds around. It was a really hard thing for the Thessalonians to wrap their minds around. 
in their church. I'll just say before I read what Paul said to the Thessalonians, there's, in the Bible there's spiritual death in this life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Christians have been delivered out of that. We have been made alive together with Christ. There's also, when we look at eternity, there's eternal death, the condemnation that Romans 8.1 says that we were once under. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank God. We no longer have to worry about spending an eternal suffering in hell under the righteous wrath of God. Jesus has delivered us from that eternal death. But one thing that we do still have to deal with the reality of even as saved Christians, even as we've had the spiritual death in this life removed from us, even as we've been brought from eternal death to eternal life in Jesus, we still face the physical grave. It's ahead probably for most of us, unless Jesus comes back first. In the church at Thessalonica, which is an interesting situation, Paul had been in Thessalonica for a really short period of time, maybe just a few weeks, before he got driven out of town uh, through persecution. And in that time, a, a number of people had come to faith in Jesus, but he had only had just a very short period of time to work with them and, and to teach them the truths of the Christian faith. And so when you get to the letter of First Thessalonians, you see Paul starting to cover some some very basic kinds of things, like don't commit sexual immorality. And if somebody is lazy, tell them to get a job. Just like basic things like that in 1 Thessalonians. But one of the things that they're dealing with that almost seems strange to us now is that they couldn't seem to understand in the church at Thessalonica, if we've been given eternal life, then how could it be that some people in our church died. They, they seem to have had this idea, if we've trusted in Jesus, if we really are Christians, if we really have eternal life, then, then we shouldn't physically die. We should have been delivered from that. Well, here's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 to them. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, by which he means those who physically died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Hear that? They were worried. If that that person died, if my mother trusted in Jesus, but then my mother died, does that mean that she's gone forever, that God forsook her? That was their worry. And he says, absolutely not. They may have suffered, they may have lost the world, but they've gained Christ. But we have to deal with the fact God will bring most of us through physical death. Why would God do that? Well, very simple answer, back from Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I mean, that's the, the plainest answer. Death exists in the world because of sin. The the fact that we physically die is a worldly consequence of the fact that we are sinners against God. And even babies who die, who I believe probably go to heaven, the reason that the physical death came is because they were still born sinners in Adam. 
I'm not going to get into the whole reason right now. I've been through that before, and we can talk after if you want why I think they go to heaven. But, but when we face our own physical death, it's a reminder just because I trust in Jesus doesn't get me out of all of the worldly consequences of my sin. And one of those consequences is physical death. But believer, you also need to know this. Romans 8.28 is coming up. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Do you know what one of those things is? Physical death. It is possible that some or even all Christians in this room right now would be alive at the time when Jesus returns from the dead, blasts the trumpet, and we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And maybe not some of us will die physically, but more than likely, we will. And we have to say, why would God choose that I would be among those who physically die rather than letting me be one of those who's around at the sound of the trumpet when in the twinkling of an eye I would be changed and transformed into the image of Christ in my resurrection body. Well, whatever it is the reason, it it is for our good. It is for your good, your eternal good. You hear that? Some, Some things that Robert Haldane said about this back in the 19th century, he said one of the things that this can do as we look at physical death it can make us hate sin more. It can remind us sin that brings death stinks. I don't want to go there anymore. One of the things that it can do to look at death is, is it can remind us about the character of God. As it's going to say in Romans eleven twenty two, the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness that even though we're sinners, that he would deliver us past death, past that final river that we would cross into eternal life. That's God's kindness, but also the severity that the river is there in front of us, that God is that serious. It's to humble us, make us remember that God's power is not made perfect in our strength. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. When you go to a funeral and you consider that you're going to be the one in the casket one day, you can remember God's power is made perfect in my weakness. And another thing it does, conforms us to Christ. Jesus died. Did you know that? Jesus died and he rose again. And, and, and Paul said, I want to gain Christ by me being made like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's Philippians 3. And that's part of the way that God is going to use to conform us into the image of Christ, as it says in Romans 8.29. But I just want to assure you, believer, when you go through that time, when you pass that river of death into eternal life, God has said this in Psalm 116.15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He cares. He's compassionate in it. And even though you die, yet will you live in Christ. But here's what it says also. Even though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Not because of our righteousness, by the way. Right? The body is dead because of our sin, but we don't have life by our righteousness. That, That doesn't make sense. That wouldn't compute with the whole rest of the book of Romans or the whole rest of the Bible. This is talking about Jesus's righteousness. 
the righteousness of the Spirit of Christ who comes to indwell us, the righteousness of Jesus' life that is counted to us by faith alone, that he gives us life. Verse 11, finally, the Spirit is going to defeat sin and death in every Christian. Here's what it says. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, think about that, believer. Do you know who has taken up residence in you? The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. That's how he's described. If he dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your souls? Well, yes, but that's not what it says here. To your mortal bodies. Through his Spirit, he says it again, who dwells in you. He says, look at this, the life-giving Spirit dwells in you. Did you know that the Holy Spirit doesn't just dwell in your soul? He dwells in your body too? In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Not just with your heart, not just with your soul, but with your body too. But he dwells in you. He dwells in you, and it says he's going to give life. You know what this is talking about? There is a day of resurrection coming. Jesus was raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits. But there's a day coming when God is going to break open every tomb. God is going to take every little piece of sprinkled ash out in the ocean. God is going to take every bit of it. He's going to take the dead. He is going to put the bodies back together. He is going to raise the dead. The way that it's described in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, the way that it's described from the lips of Jesus in his earthly ministry in John chapter 5 is that there's going to be a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. There will be a day even when those who hate Christ will be brought back to life, their soul will be returned to their body but not for their good so that they can be cast eternally, body and soul, into the lake of fire to suffer under the righteous judgment of God for all eternity, and their smoke will go up forever and ever. But believer, here's what it says for you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Not a resurrection to judgment, but a resurrection to life. Even if God causes you to pass through that day of death, before Jesus comes back, he's going to raise you from the dead. He's going to put your soul and your body back together, and you're going to dwell in a perfected body like Jesus' resurrection body forever and ever. Let me just read you a couple of the scriptures that talk about this. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's who died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. By the way, that is not a secret coming of Jesus. That's very loud. And he says, the dead in Christ will rise first, which is probably going to be most of us. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I hope you'll be encouraged with these words. It's saying right there that he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who already now dwells in you. Or in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
in the moment and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, there is a day of resurrection coming. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. If you've misunderstood that, that's a different thing. But guys, there is a day of resurrection coming. And we need to set our hearts and our hope on that day and be assured that it's coming for us because the Spirit of of, of Christ, who raised Christ, is already now giving us life and is already indwelling us. He's the life-giving Spirit. You know what you need to do? You need to trust in Jesus. And you need to have the Spirit living in you, and if He is living in you, you need to be glad about that. Follow His leadership. Open the Bible. Listen to His words. Let it point you to Jesus. Let Him let it f- cause you to follow in the path of Christ. Let the Spirit give you life. And if he hasn't, come to Jesus now and he will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us of your Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this Holy Spirit, God, who has written the words of Scripture and, Lord, is involved in the, the creation from the beginning and and is this water of life to us and the seven spirits before the throne, all these ways that he's described throughout the Scripture. But, God, he has come and done a supernatural work to take us out of the flesh, to put us in the Spirit, to make us born again. God, we thank you for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you've given us. Uh, God, I, I pray... Lord, we, I, I talked in this sermon about our brothers and sisters in Christ in the charismatic movement. Lord, there are many who are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ, and we thank you for them. But we just also praise you that you have have actually given the Spirit to indwell every Christian, and I pray that you would give us a submission to the Spirit, a love of the Spirit's work in our hearts, uh, Lord, and change us and give us grace by the Spirit. Father, I pray for those today who don't have the Spirit, who are apart from Christ, lost in their sin, Uh, Lord, I pray that the Spirit would come and do a mighty work in them, turn them to glorify Jesus, to believe in him and in their believing to repent of their sin and have eternal life that the Spirit gives. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.